Welcome to today's episode of Fire in the Belly. This is where we get to hear some pretty inspiring stories from some amazing people. You know, it's always an absolute pleasure to sit down, take time out and have a warts and all conversation about their journey. I'm always intrigued by what it's taken for people to get to where they are today. And hopefully in this interview, we get to hear some more about that. From this, my mission is to help people to find their own fire in their belly. And from that, to live the mightiest version of you. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy today's guest. Success is a process, not an event. Hello and welcome to Fire in the Belly. Today we have myself, Mighty Pete, and we are joined by the Roy Osing. Good afternoon. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning, Pete, and thank you very much for uh, having me here. Listen, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on. We've had a bit of a chat before, so I know this is going to be a good one. So uh, absolute pleasure to have you here. So to give our listeners a bit of a background about Roy. So Roy Osing is the former president, CMO, and entrepreneur with over 40 years of successful and unmatched executive leadership experience in every aspect of business. As president of a major data and internet company, his leadership and audacious unheard ways unheard of ways, took the company from its early stage to 1 billion in annual sales. He is a resolute blogger, keen content marketer, dedicated teacher and mentor to young professionals. As an accomplished business advisor, he is the author of the No Nonsense book series, Be Different or Be Dead, like it. He is devoted to inspiring leaders, entrepreneurs and organizations to stand apart from the average boring crowd and achieve their true potential. Roy, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for coming on. So really tell us, first of all, what does fire in the belly mean to you, Roy? Well, it, it means like I, t- I tend to look at things from an execution lens. Um, in my life, in my experience, um, the objective was always to execute uh, in the marketplace better than anybody else. And if I could do that, um, we would typically beat any competitor who might have a pristine plan, but no execution. So I was a guy that said, give me a mediocre plan and I'll execute the bejesus out of it and beat everybody out there. Passion and fire are essential ingredients to being able to do that. People don't, um, don't execute uh, from the intellect. The, 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 the intellect absolutely adds nothing. To, to the ability to execute. If people don't feel the strategy, if they don't believe that this is right, they won't do anything different, okay? And so when the fire's not lit, nothing happens. So fire in the belly for me is an essential gradient to execute, which is really part of this whole audacious thing that I'm talking about these days, right? Where leaders need to be execution focused. And in order to do that, they need to have employees, warriors in the organization, that, that have amazing fires going all the time. And that's the challenge. So it's an essentially ingredient uh, to actually superlative performance. I mean, that's the other thing. I'm a guy that looks for simple things to achieve strategic results. It's not about being doing it to be cute about the concept. Like if fire in the belly wasn't relevant to delivering results better than anybody else, then I wouldn't have much, much use in the notion, right? So I keep linking things like fire, to performance. And we're going to talk about other things like crap to performance, like dumb rules to performance, like goosebumps to performance. So there's a lot of those simple concepts that are highly strategic and highly influential in terms of how individuals and organizations perform. 
I love that because it's super simple. And when you def- just to define for me here, will you about execution? I mean, is execution just getting started and undertaking action as opposed to just all talk or is it completion of the task? How would you define execution just to be clear? Well, execution is, is basically making a plan or intent come to life. However, however that, that happens, it's like people doing something to see that the brave idea actually becomes a crude deed. Okay. So there's too many people with brave ideas, Pete, and they sit there in all their bravery and academic pristineness and deliver no value to people. Mm. Execution is getting that idea, whether it's a startup or whether it's a, it's a, it's a fully mature organization that's trying to do something. It's getting that, delivering that value in a way that basically that nobody else does. So, um, and if you look at history of leadership, I mean, I've had a lot of it and I got to tell you, I'd sit in the planning session, 80% of the, of the, of the bandwidth in that meeting was consumed by figuring out what the plan should look like according to a whole bunch of academic doctrine. You got to have the SWATs right. You got to do all this stuff. We got to apply, you know, you know, least squares analysis to data, blah, blah, blah. Useless. Okay. Because we didn't have any time left to figure out, okay, now that we understand kind of where we're going, how are we going to get there? That's execution. And leaders don't spend enough time doing that. And that's one of my pet peeves, just trying to beat them over the head with this stuff. You got to open the door to talk about how you're going to implement the brave idea. Otherwise, it's totally useless. And quite frankly, you're being dishonest to the board because you're actually leading them to believe that you can do it. And you can't. What's that saying? I'm trying to think of it here. It's, it's everyone's got a plan to get a punch in the face or something. <laughs> There's something I've totally butchered that comment, but <laughs> I don't know. I'm it, not even going to go there because I'll just make it worse. <laughs> but it is good, right? Because I mean, it's true. It's, we, we can all plan, 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 plan until you actually physically do something. It's all talk, right? It's all just maybe ifs, well, shoulds, right? But you know, and it's the easy part, quite honestly. People make it a, to be such a complex thing. And we're taught, by the way, uh, at school that it's a hard thing. I mean, all you have to do, I used to have fun with, with MBA grads that would come and apply for a job with me because I'd tell them that their degree was useless, right? Well, that would get their attention right away. Like, I don't care how many case studies you've done, but what I care about is how you're going to apply that knowledge to executing my strategy or our strategy. Show me that. Talk to me about that. I don't care what you got in math. Okay. And I, I accept the fact that you can think. And you're a problem solver. Now help me understand how you can add value to my bottom line. Because again, this is only being done. The audaciousness piece is a means to an end for me. It's not the end in and of itself. And if, if, if the linkage didn't exist between these crazy ideas, right, and in, in a, in a billion-dollar top revenue line, then we wouldn't have this conversation about the concepts. So, Yeah. I mean, I love that because like coming out of a university or whatever, that it just shows an aptitude to be able to do it, right? Because the theory, some of it, about what, 20% of it's actually useful. The rest of it's like, you know, the fact that you turned up, the fact that you did the exam, the fact that you did all that, the fact that you somehow paid for it, right? That's that's the actual two trusted, two true. Uh, test of actually what the whole thing's about, right? It's not so much the fact of, you know, you're the smartest guy in the room because they're probably not, right? They're, they're good on paper, but. Well, I, I, I would say to people, because I do a lot of work with young professionals and they're totally confused, right? <laughs> they got all these, these, these degrees 
and yet they can't find meaningful work. Mm-hmm. They got all these degrees because they've been led to believe, Pete, that if you had the parchment, if you had the piece of paper, that in and itself will is, is going to get you six figures. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so they've been misled, right? And I keep saying to them, it's not that your education is unimportant. It is important, but it's only a beginning. It's what you do from here on in. Let me help you with that. Why should you listen to me? Because I've done it. I've got stuff that's proven. Or you don't take a, a, a business in the early stages and grow it to a billion in annual revenue by getting lucky. Hmm. You don't. Okay. My experience is we were able to do it by, by actually creating an environment of fire yeah. and implementing simple things that people love to do that allowed us to out hustle everybody and just have a skyrocketing revenue line. That's all there is to it. Why doesn't that happen today? Well, first of all, people being educated don't have that perspective because the people teaching them, and I mean, no disrespect to them, they don't have the background. They haven't run a billion dollar a year. They haven't struggled painfully up the hill to get to a billion. And unless you do that, you don't get it. It's not done by figuring out how to apply differential equations because my, my, my formal background is mathematics and computer science. Whoopee, never done anything with that formally. I've never solved the business problem with a differential equation. Pete, do you believe that? Whoa. I'll not come to you for the math problems then. But that's okay. <laughs> yeah, my grandkids, they still call me up. Papa, look, I got a math problem. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, my credibility is so on the line here. I just <laughs> got to reach back and reach back. And linear algebra, oh, my God, it's horrible. I mean, that that phenomenal journey you've been through, I mean, taking, you know, that, that really that startup right through to a billion, I mean, did you have any concept or is this very much almost audaciously learning while you did it almost as well? You know, or, or what was your, did you have a plan? I mean. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Um, when we started out, well, there's a whole bunch of things going on at the time. See the telecom, I was in a telecom business and at the time um, the, the sort of monopoly thing going back into the day, cause that's where all this started. The whole monopoly shield was, was disappearing and the internet space was just coming up. And so that represented a tremendous opportunity for shareholders. And I was asked to go figure it out. Literally, Roy, go figure it out. They always did this to me. Roy, we got a problem over here, go figure it out. Because I dealt with problems and practicalities better than other people, I guess. Anyways, so we had to figure out how to move from the voice world to the data world. Okay, that was a huge, huge discontinuity. It required a different culture. It required different skill sets. It required a different attitude. It required technology. Technology was always our strength, okay, in that business. So that piece came fairly easily. And then there was tremendous union problems because the voice world was highly, highly structured from a union point of view. The data world, because it was highly competitive, couldn't be. We needed more freedom and flexibility. So in the face of all of that, we, we, I, I got myself just a tremendous group of, of people uh, to work with me on this. I mean, I handpicked them for their fire. I mean, for their, for their passion. And so we, we set a plan in motion. I'll tell you about my approach to planning later if you want, but it's completely different than most people look at planning. So I call it strategic game planning because it's built to execute. 
So we created this plan for the business um, with order of magnitude increases to the revenue line. Now that's key. You got to look at top line revenues because that's the expression of customer demand. It's not net income. Net income, I can give you whatever you want just by playing with the numbers, okay? But top line revenue, you can't ride, run and hide from that. It is what it is. It's what customers pay you. So the metric that was key for us was top line. And I can't remember those particular numbers, but we set bold revenue numbers. I mean, order of magnitude increases in revenue numbers without any, no, without any idea as to how we would achieve them. And that's a critical point because my view and experience is that that's the source of innovation and creativity. If you know how to achieve something, you're not really incented to do anything different. You're not incented to, to, to break away. I almost use the word pivot, um, break away, right? And so we would set these goals and then say, and my team at first was a lot really uncomfortable without having an idea as to how we we're going to achieve them. Why? Because we were taught that forecasting should drive the top revenue line. And oh, by the way, that's linear regression analysis, right? Which is completely useless in a world where you've got unknowns, you know, because no such thing as an independent variable here. And you can always change the variables, change the numbers anyway. So we set order of magnitude uh, revenue goals. And the question was, okay, what do we have to do differently to achieve them? That's a key question. That question, again, be different or be dead, that question drove the innovation process in the business. It drove what kinds of products and services we had to look at. It drove what kind of process improvements were required. Okay, it, it, it drove different inventory management uh, approaches to increase turns and cash flow. Blah, blah. It drove everything. So I'm a fan of numbers-driven strategy, not strategy-driven numbers. Numbers drive the strategy. Because if you want 10 million, you'll get a certain strategy. If you want a billion, you'll get a different strategy, right? Fairly obvious. Why doesn't anybody do it that way? Okay, well, because they don't. So anyways, we started. And through a whole bunch of, of uh, audacious things along the way, which we can talk about, uh, there was no, no silver bullets here, Pete, none. There were no big, grandiose step move functions at play, <laughs> no blue oceans, nothing. Just in the trench, hard work, doing some simple things that turned people on and lit their fires and that got us moving. And because we didn't start out with a billion as a target, right? But when we look back upon it, we went, wow. I guess I get goosebumps just thinking about this, right? And remembering, we go, wow, look at what we did. Amazing, just amazing. And the fun part about it is to have this kind of a conversation and talk to you about the stuff, simple stuff. And when you hear it, you go, what's the big deal? It's so simple. And that's the beauty of it. It's, it was beautiful in its simplicity because it connected with people's passion and, and just kind of opened up their ability to perform. And performing in this case was back to our earlier conversation, execution. So long-winded answer, I know, but it was very, uh, it's a, I don't know, it was just amazing. That's all I can say. Uh, do, do, do people get it or are they so busy looking for the shortcut that they just sort of go, no, no, it can't be that simple, right? So, you know, it, it can't just be about that. Surely there must be a quicker, faster, better way of doing it, you know? Yeah. 
I, I think, I think maybe it's a combination of, of a bunch of things. Like I've talked to people and they've said, Oh, we could, we would never believe, be, be able to do that. They would never allow us to implement a cut the crap program, which we can talk about in a little bit. They would never allow us to kill dumb rules. They wouldn't even allow us to talk like that. So there's that crowd, which in a way, I don't let them get away with that, by the way, because there's all sorts of things that people can do within their own frame of reference without relying on approval, et cetera, et cetera, because that's herd thinking. So I never get, let them get away with that. There's other people who I think are a little more left-brained who would, who would say, that's too simple to work. But you know what? I always had them. You know what my ace was? Hey, listen, I grew a business to a billion dollars in sales right? Using this stuff. Are you really telling me that it can't be done? I mean, so that's the ultimate ace for me is to say it worked. If it worked for me, and that's kind of the thesis of, the, of my latest piece of work is that, guys, this stuff works. I know it sounds easy. I know it sounds simple. I know you won't read it in a textbook, but believe me, I did it. We did it. It can be done please start the journey. And so I think there's a, a combination of a bunch of stuff, the, the in, incredulity of, of it all in terms of its simplicity is, is part of it. But, you know, and then there's, then there's the, yeah, I, um, I, I don't know. There's, there's leadership that doesn't want to believe it's that simple because after all, what value do they provide if it's that simple? There's that piece. So I would call it... Um, ego leadership ego is at play in a lot of this because I fought that okay I had to fight inside to get some of this stuff done against engineering people right who you talk about yeah right show me the numbers blah 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 down on a discrete formula basis and maybe I'll live. I had to fight people like that I had to fight I had to fight the investment guys in, in the technology and who wanted to continue to invest in voice services where I needed a few billion dollars with the capital investment in a year to expand the internet uh, network, by the way, because we're fighting dial up to go to one and a half megabits, Pete. I mean, come on. I mean, wow. One and a half megs. <laughs> so we, I had all those internal things working um, not to try and subvert us, but just doing their inertia ploy as humans, hanging on to what, what they felt was right, and unfortunately creating all sorts of um, more pressure on us uh, in a very tough environment to move forward. So it's, it's a great question. Uh, I wish I had a, a discreet answer for you. How, how then, especially, I mean, this is, it's more than just in time, right? It's it's that sort of you know on the fly kind of let's try it, let's see it, let's. Uh, what what then gives you the what then gives you the measure of the success? Is it then you look at the data and saying that was that worked, that didn't? We need to pull back a little bit, go forward down here, you know, and that is it that aspect that's actually giving you the the the, the feedback to let you know you're on the right path. So it's it's like two levels. The first level is let's look at the top line. Is it on plan? Because that was set order of magnitude growth. Are we on plan? If the answer was yes, then my conclusion, without any further analysis, 
was that the bundle of goodies that we were doing was working because it didn't make any sense to go and do a microscopic cause and effect analysis on those independent actions. Why would I do that? Right? There's a lot of people that would. And as a result, they wasted a whole lot of time trying to prove something that didn't need to be proved. Right Now, if something happened that represented a problem to any one of those levers, those simple levers we were pulling, uh, empirically, and we looked at it and go, oh, and, and again, it, this wouldn't be for revenue purposes because we didn't break these, these individual sort of initiatives, these, I call them audacious ways. We didn't break the audacious ways down into individual revenue streams. There was no, no need to do that. The point was, if at the macro level we were on, then stuff was working unless told otherwise or proven otherwise. Um, if there was something that, that really stood out as it was creating a problem, not from a revenue point of view, but maybe from a, uh, a personnel point of view, maybe from a customer point of view, whatever, then we dive in and look at that and say, how can we make it more relevant, okay, more compelling, and light more fires? Kind of like the three things that we did. But as long as we were on, now, there were times when we weren't on. Like, we measured revenues every 30 days. So this was not an annual plan. Like, I don't believe in that. And I don't, sure as hell don't believe in five-year plans because the fourth year never shows up, right? The hockey stick, we know. We can, we can all play that game. So my focus was on 30-day plans. Why 30 days? Because that's execution-focused. Again, lining up the metrics, right, to, to, to be consistent with what you're preaching, with how you're trying to lead. Lead in execution, look at the numbers every 30 days. So we'd, look, we'd do that, and we would spend... I'd say at, like, at least three days, three days looking at those 30-day numbers. That's where the individual diagnosis would come if, in fact, we needed to do so. And so we would explore what are the key things that are working to keep us ahead? What are the key things that are giving us troubles to get us behind? Who's going to be accountable to do what by when to fix that? Get at it. And that's it, right? So it's like a war room mentality, not a planning mentality. It was a war room mentality, bad choice of words, but that's what it was uh, every day because it, it was a war. We had, we had competitors that were allowed into our business where, that were completely unregulated from the point of view of price and everything else. And yet we, we had controls placed on us by regulation, being basically a telecom company originally working into a new space while the regulations kind of like didn't change overnight. And so we had our hands tied behind our backs to a certain degree and had to work within that. Uh, and so looking at um, what was working and what wasn't working on a 30-day basis was absolutely critical to our execution, absolutely critical. And, you know, it, it played, it presented opportunities, Pete. I mean, we, we had the, the whole executive team in a room and we'd parade in champion frontline people that, that did something miraculous and amazing and daunting for a customer. It was presented a forum and everybody got to know that. That was Roy's 30-day meeting. Let's figure out a way to get in there and get recognized, right? Because we, we'd have fun and it was, you know, it was great. Certainly not the sort of thing you read in textbooks, right? You just don't. I'm trying to, I mean, is that... <laughs> Is that part of the execution team to have that confidence to do that? Or is it part of the leadership's 
strength that actually to give somebody the space or the bandwidth or the resources to actually do it? I mean, which is more powerful or, or is it, it has to be both? Well, one's a function of the other. Okay. I mean, if the leader doesn't put the mechanism in place, not, then it won't happen. Right. So, so for me, again, going back to, to my premise earlier that said, I never did anything that was not directly linked to the execution of my strategy. The 30 day meetings were directly linked because that made it real for us all the time. It kept execution through numbers right in our faces all the time. We were always working in numbers, always working the problems, always recognizing the people, always, you know, doing that sort of stuff. So um, it, it was, you know, in a way, I've, I've coined this, um, this uh, phrase called strategy hawk. Strategy hawk in, in the audacious world is a leader who holds themselves absolutely accountable for the execution of the strategy. I was that person as a president of the company, not to be delegated. I was that person and everybody knew it. I've known one other strategy hawk uh, in my life. And that is the current CEO. And I'm going to give him a plug here because he wrote the forward in, in my book. And he's just an amazing person. A guy by the name of Darren Entwistle from the UK who came in to tell us several years ago. He's the strategy hawk now. And I learned a lot from him. Um, and he personifies the need to execute. Darren, well done. Learned a lot. And by the way, our, that company has outperformed every other telecom in the world for years straight in terms of shareholder value. So nobody can tell me that there's no relationship between strategy hawks and financial performance. <laughs> I got to tell you, but, but you see, why doesn't that happen, Pete? What happens is the CEO delegates that to the business development guys, right? Yep. After all, it fits in their job description. So why shouldn't they be held accountable or the strategic planning guy? You can't do that because those guys don't have any power over the organization and you need to ex exert power sometimes to get things done, to grease the skids, to do outrageous things without asking permission. <laughs> That's all in the name of execution. Yeah. So that, I mean, that aspect, well, first of all, just define what you see as audacious. I mean, what is, what is it about that? Cause it's obviously something sure. de dear to your heart. Yeah, well, okay, and it's, yeah, and, you know, the English majors will give me crap for this, but it, it's, it's more about describing notions of uh, doing unheard of things, right? Like the, the name of, my, of the book is The Audacious Unheard of Ways I Took a Startup to a Billion in Sales. Unheard of is a huge piece of that. It's like cause it's, it's the ultimate expression of innovation, Pete. The ultimate expression of innovation, if it's never been heard of before. Hmm. So that was a huge driver of it. But there's other, there's, there's, there's a notion of risk-taking. There's a notion of boldness. There's a notion of, of unmatched, like nobody's ever done this before. Unheard of, nobody done. It's almost like, it's almost like the heart attack grill in Las Vegas. Have you ever heard of that? No. Heart attack grill is a, it's, it's a restaurant in Las Vegas called the Heart Attack Grill, and their famous product is the Triple Bypass Burger. <laughs> right. And you know what? All of the waitresses and servers are all dressed up as nurses. I mean, and they're, <laughs> they're referred to as... Anyway, 
absolutely crazy notion, crazy notion. And you know what? People visit because it's outrageous. The, the burgers are great, I guess, but you know, they're like, boom, like 7 million calories, et cetera. But that notion, and I'm not saying, you know, you'd want to do that, but there's an example of somebody who has said, I'm going to do this in a world where everybody's concerned about health and, and calorie intake. I'm going to go against the flow and I'm going to do something freaking crazy. And we'll see what happens to your point about trying later. And they're still here. So I got no idea how they're doing, but they're still here. And I'm assuming people are continuing to consume triple bypass. <laughs> oh my God. I think, I think it's a fantastic idea, but that's just Roy. But those are the sorts of things. Um, striving to stand out and create relevant value for people is another notion that's very, very strong with me. Like I, I, I look at the marketing function in an organization, which today I find disappointing, to be honest, because you know, they still talk about satisfying customer needs. Well, the fact is everybody has their needs satisfied these days. That's not what you're going to win on. So I come up with this notion of no, what we need to do is we need to give people what they crave, what they lust for, what they covet, because that's a feeling generated requirement. And if you can actually do that and experiences, right? If you can do that, first of all, you'll probably get a premium price for it. And secondly, you know, you're going to outdo everybody who's, who's playing the needs-based commodity-type businesses. I mean, so it's that notion of, of creating um, relevant and compelling value for people that's a huge part of the audaciousness. Because after all, we're not doing this, again, Pete, we're not doing it to be cute. We're not doing it to satisfy our own needs to be different. We're doing it to generate wealth. That's it. That's it. That's all there is. And if we can have fun along the way, what the hell? Why not? What drives you, Roy? Are you pain-based or are you pleasure-based? Where, where do you get that from? <laughs> well, I look at I, I've rationalized it because I believe pain is a key strategic concept. <laughs> I just do. I do. So I know that there's no, there's no uh, worthwhile achievement. Uh, without going through pain and agony, quote unquote, and body blows and setbacks. And, and it's more about how you deal with those along the way. For anybody that thinks that they can, they can achieve what they want without receiving a body blow, they're way too academic for me. And they've really not had enough life experience to know that that's a ridiculous notion. So I get up in the morning thinking, well, okay, I sort of have a roadmap, but um, you know, we may have to move around that because there will be things happen that I haven't expected, and and some of it may be more painful than others, and we'll just have to have to deal with that. Um, I don't. I guess I don't take a lot of time, and maybe this is a problem. I don't take a lot of time having done something, um, reflecting on it. And, and dragging the joy out of it. There's always something, maybe I'm sequential. So there's always the next step, right, of everything. It's so, well, okay, now, now I know that worked. That was cool. That was fun. Now, <laughs> boom, right? And so, uh, yeah, that's just, that's just the way I'm, I'm made up. And, 
And as I say, maybe that's maybe that's a problem. Maybe we we need to take a little more time and and be meditative and reflective on on what we've done. Uh, and maybe that would be good for me. Uh, I have a certain stress level that drives me, and and it works for me. And I often find if if I try different things uh, under the guise of joy and so forth, sometimes it 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 black backfires on me and it doesn't work. But that's just me. Other people different. I think as a general concept, we don't spend enough time thinking about um, and taking uh, joy from what we achieved. I agree with that. It's always interesting, isn't it? Because I mean, some people need to feel the the sort of the proximity of of pain or deadlines or whatever. You know, mm-hmm. some people are very much you know, here's the blank page and we're going to create something without a you know, without we I don't need a deadline. I'm just going to create anyway, right? So it's it's always interesting to see you know what motivates people the most, what sort of gets their juices flowing, you know. Um, I know for me, I'm a firefighter type of person. I need to go into, you know, a problem. I can then visualize it, whereas if someone hands me a blank piece of paper, right, it's kind of, well, what do you want? <laughs> you know, give me a concept. Yeah. I, I think I'm a combination of those. And let me, let me explain why. Like, I love blank pieces of paper because I said earlier, creativity starts with the unknown. I believe that it's, it's, I've experienced that. The difference is I'm not willing to start once I've got some stop, once I've got something on the paper, like it, without going the next step. And that's, that's the execution part of Roy coming without that next step. It's merely a, a theoretical concept. It's an aspiration. It's a dream. Okay. It's a brave idea. And what I've learned is if that's what you want, then you should be doing studies somewhere not not be held achieving accountable for delivering results you can't because that stuff is not directly related to delivering results unless the execution or the right brain or the fire piece comes into so yeah i'm 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 pretty good at filling in a, a blank piece of paper um but i have specific um uh, uh, mechanisms and mechanics that I impose to take it to the next step. You know, for, let me give you an example. We, I had this, well, I shouldn't say, yeah, that was mine. Um, we used to talk about things that, that are the need for more people. We needed more resources. And so I said, well, okay, what are the sort of things that we're doing now that aren't creating any value for us? Maybe what we could do is dig those out and open our bandwidth then to do the new things that our strategy required. And then somebody said, well, okay, let's look at the non-strategic things that we do. And I said, no, that's crap. They go, what? I said, no, we're going to call it cut the crap because that's what it is, right? It's greasing the skids or clogging them up, not allowing us to go forward. So the notion of cleansing the internal environment on paper, which is my expression, quickly led to this whole thing of how can we get rid of the crap in the business and get credit for the room that we create when we do it. So we launched a, a cut the crap initiative and um, it, it was, it was just a blast. I mean, it, it started out people going, are you sure we want to do this? And are we sure? Because, you know, I mean, there's a lot of sacred animals and sacred cows and sacred everything in, in terms of, the way things are done in an organization, right? There's always an owner somewhere <laughs> who doesn't want their 
their crap removed. <laughs> they just don't, right? So um, we took the notion and gave it uh, some real tangibility by a program that, that, that consciously defined, evaluated, and removed or changed, if we couldn't remove it, the unproductive assets crap in the organization. And the people that had the most fun with this were frontline people because they can tell you exactly the dumb stuff that we do that gets in the way, right? And so the productivity factor was was it went up, of course, because people weren't encumbered uh, from the cleansing that went on, right? So so you know that so that was one example of, of taking a strategic need to eliminate the requirement for new resources and transform it into a simple program that everybody understood and could get behind and had some good result. It's kind of, um, I like it because it slightly flies in the face of people talk about, you know, don't get stuck in the weeds, you know, got to be thinking at 10,000 foot, you got to be strategic thinking, got to be all this, you know, and, but then you lose touch with reality, right? So, I mean, you're sort of almost saying, no, 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 we're almost not saying quite work in the weeds, but I'm saying work, you know, you got to put the, the implementation side in place. Have I, have I picked this up correctly? Uh, you know, sort of. Uh, we're, we're totally working in the weeds. Hmm. Totally working. Be proud to work in the weeds because that's where the job gets done. It doesn't get done with the idea. Keep going back to that. Don't ever get fooled by anybody that says, I got a great idea that's going to be a winner. Well, I got lots of questions to ask that person when they tell that to me. It is in the way. I've written a whole bunch of blogs on what I call get dirty leadership. It's the leadership requirement to get in the trenches with the front line asking one simple question. How can I help? How can I help? And so some people call that that uh, servant leadership. I call it how can I help leadership makes it just a little more specific. I want you to be asking people who are, what are they doing? They're executing. Why are we doing it? Because we want to execute. Why are we want to execute? To get better financial performance. There I go all the way back up to the strategy, Pete, again, right? In order to do that, leaders have to get dirty. They have to get in the trenches. They have to get in the weeds. And in fact, uh, you know, even though a lot don't, and, and a lot find the concept repugnant and a lot would never. That's fine. Do whatever. The CEO needs to deal with that because those organizations don't really achieve a hell of a lot unless they've got a Steve Jobs, which let's face it, you can't, you can't rely on, on having a guy like that around. Most of us mere mortals need to do hard things to achieve what we want to achieve. And that's where I'm, I'm sort of coming from. So so yeah, you got to get in the weeds. I spent copious amounts of time with customer service people, having them teach me what their job was, asking them what they needed to do their job better, what I could do to help that process. And it was amazingly powerful. The, the onus was on me to deliver though, because you know you can use your lose your credibility awful fast if you, you put that out there and you don't deliver. So a really large part of my time was based on, was devoted to that in the weeds. And there's another aspect of this that I wanna to mention to you, which flies in the face of popular um, theories of delegation, because everybody talks about how leaders need to delegate. Well, 
from where I from where I come from, uh, I've seen delegation turn into abdication awful bloody quick. And, and I got no time for it, to be honest. So I come up with this do it yourself. It's called fingerprint leadership. You can quote me on that because I came up with that terminology, by the way, Pete, this morning. I mentioned it to my wife. I said, I'm going to try this. What do you think? She says, I love it. <laughs> That's all. So my whole notion of do it yourself is fingerprint leadership because I talk a lot about certain things need to have the fingerprints of leaders. They do. They're, they can't be delegated to somebody that doesn't carry the fire, you know, and is not strategically responsible for the end result. And let me give you an example. The example that I always use is, is the customer experience. People talk about that, but very few leaders have actually assumed the role of architecting it themselves with their people. That's what I call finger leaving their fingerprints on what that contact with a customer looks like. What kind of behaviors? How to deal with conflicts? What, what kind of empowerment, et cetera? Everything around the customer moment, in my view, needs to be um, architected. And the person to do that and leave their fingerprints on it is the leader. So that's fingerprint uh, leadership. And that is totally in the weeds. And there'll be people out there going, oh, my God, could you imagine how much time that would take? <laughs> yeah, I can. But I, I come back and say, can you imagine the power in terms of execution? Can you imagine? Can you imagine the conversation that goes on in that in that workplace? When the president of the company is down talking about, OK, what if we did this? What if we do this? And I'm not talking ordering people, Pete. I'm talking about working with people to craft, you know, something that works strategically. And I'm the guy that owns the strategy. So it's on me. People talk about that and go, wow, can you believe that? Can you believe that? Fun. Simple. Fingerprint leadership on your show. Very first time you own it. <laughs> As you talk there, I feel I feel real sort of synergies with your style with the likes of Elon Musk. It's very much kind of roll the sleeves. We're we're gonna go down onto this part of the production line. We're gonna sit here and just chew it out until we get a solution, right? I mean that's that's what I'm hearing. Is that fair? No, I think knowing and to be honest with you, I'm not a student of Elon yet. But based on, on my understanding of who he is and how he does it and observing the innovation process, yeah, I think he's very much aligned with that. And that's what makes him stand apart. And that's what makes him the subject of so many questions and narratives and critiques and commentary. And that's just another part of the strategic pain that one has to endure. But he does a good job of it. I mean, if ever there were a, a good example, thank you for raising that. I never thought about this before. There's an example of, 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 of having an aspiration, right? Started out with, you know, the environment and leading back into, into electric vehicles on paper, uh, having that, that sort of concept and then driving out something, literally driving out something that, that's capturing the hearts and minds of people. That's a great example. I mean, the, the, the whole utilization of an iPad, for God's sakes, right? And that whole concept, like, I just find freaking amazing. 
My wife says, we'll never get a Tesla <laughs> because, because she says, I'm having trouble just using my iPhone. And, and I said, I know, what you, I know what you mean. Kind of scary. My son has one and it's just, just a work of art. It's a work of art. And, so, and, and engineering wise, it works too. Because so. even what you were saying earlier, uh, the likes of SpaceX, who I think that their mission statement is along the line. I mean, I've, I've read his book. I, I find him very interesting as a, as a, obviously as an entrepreneur, but mm -hmm. I mean, SpaceX's uh, mission statement is along the lines of to go to Mars. It's like one sentence. It's like, that's the goal. So now let's go and we fire this rocket to do that. We we'll do this. We set, you know, those little little goals. Let's doom, doom, chunk it all out. Let's let's get get down on the ground. But let's be clear: this is the overall strategy. It's not forty pages. It's not one page. It's one line. Yeah. Simple, right? Yeah, and I I I think that's a that's a good example of having a, an aspiration, <clears throat> but using it. And this is the key: using it a way to execute um, sub parts of that that all that are all lined up with that. I call it line of sight. So everything that he's done has a direct line of sight to that, to that kind of like broad aspirational goal. The problem I see in business generally is there's too much stopping at that aspiration and not enough due diligence down downstream. Okay. To drive out the specific components are gonna, that are going to get you there. And that's just another level of executing on, on this time it's on the mission statement as opposed to anything downstream. But if you, if you keep doing it all the way down the line, you actually could theoretically get to the a place where a frontline person understands their specific role in going to the moon. Yeah. Can you imagine if that were ever done? Can you imagine the meaning to that job in customer service or in marketing or whatever, if they clearly understood now, that whole issue of line, I call it line of sight leadership, where the leader actually takes on the role of translating the strategy down to, the, to every position in the organization, doesn't delegate that and leave it up to middle management to figure that out. They need to be part of the process, right? And so we, we did that um, um, not as, you know, upon reflection, not as well as I would have liked to, but, but we did it. Uh, in the key functions of the organization that, that we needed that at the time, like marketing and sales and like customer service, stuff like that, where, where we had workshops and we, we actually got, got definition of the three things that a customer service rep needs to do 24-7, 365 to make a contribution to the billion. And that line of sight focus um, really helped because it streamlined activities it got focus on the critical few, not the fun many, you know, like most jobs people have, if they're not instructed uh, or, or showed or agreed with the three things they need to do, time will fill in. What do they call that? There's a name, a law that time will fill up to consume the space yeah. available. What is that? Come on, help me out. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's There's a name. It'll take as long as you give it, basically. That's yeah. long yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, capacity thing. <clears throat> So he's a good example, I think, of, uh, of doing that. I think Richard Branson, to another, in another way, uh, demonstrates the same inclination. You know, here's a guy that, that decided that, that a winning um, capability in, in business was customer service. So what he did is he, he, he basically took his model of customer service and implemented them in the airline business. 
in the recording business. That's quite innovative. You don't buy the business, you own the core competency, and then you simply inject it into every business that you buy. What that does is it frees you. You don't have to be in the finance business. You can be in any business. So you buy a bank, you do this, you do that. And if the key is customer service, and by the way, it is, <laughs> you just implement it. I thought, I think that's incredibly insightful. Uh, I've written a little bit about, about that as well. So there's another ex example of a guy that, that, that sort of does it in a different way than Elon, but it, it does it effectively anyway. See, that, that's, that's sort of a sort of question running through my head here. Like, I mean, this approach, is it almost um, irrelevant of the, the product as such? You know, it's, it's the competencies that you're taking it to, and it could be, you know, a, a $10,000 turnover company or a billion dollar or a $10 billion company. It's almost, it's the competency, it's the intention, it's the, the, the structure that you follow is the bit that actually makes this so powerful. Yeah, I think I think in the word culture comes to my mind. Okay. Um, to 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 describe it because the product, you know, a sexy product today becomes a used product tomorrow. What what is what? So it it changes. What doesn't change though is the philosophy of constantly delivering compelling and relevant value to the customers that you've chosen to serve. That's a cultural piece. It's not a, like there's too many too many organizations that that uh, that flog products. Okay, their their job is to get the technology and they just flog it, flog it. So it's a product push mentality that has no longevity in my view. I'm I'm an absolute. Uh, uh, I reject that that strategy out of hand. What's important is that we pursue value and create benefits, and as we just pull, product becomes the capability. It doesn't come the, the end result. So if you have a culture that is constantly looking for ways to deliver value, and, and it actually, you know, Tony Shea from, uh, from Zappos, unfortunately, um, Tony is no longer with us. I don't know if you're familiar with, with his work, but uh, his, he started, a, he started a, an organization in Vegas again that sold shoes online, and it was called Zappos. Um, my wife thought it was a ridiculous notion, like what woman or man in, in any right mind would buy shoes without trying them on, right? Well, Tony had this, this, this vision, but the vision wasn't just about shoes. It's about what he called and wrote on and developed a culture around called delivering happiness. You should check him out. So, so his view of culture was we will deliver happiness every time we touch a customer, an employee, a supplier, whatever, that's going to be it. And, and, and he did that, right? He did that and he created a business that eventually Bezos bought for a few billion. I mean, so there's, there's, the, there's the, um, the proof that people will indeed buy shoes online at, at that time. Um, but it was a simple concept, delivering happiness. It led to things like you don't outsource call centers. Like, you know, today... Most businesses outsource call centers. I don't know about in, in the UK, but, but here, I mean, you call a large organization, you will end up in some remote place in the world, which, and that may or may not give, provide a good experience for you. I've had both. Um, his view was real simple. His view is we will never outsource 
right? The function that talks to our customers ever. In fact, we're going to insource everything and we're going to call them loyalty centers. So these call centers in Zappos were loyalty centers and they were measured not by how many calls went through the loyalty center, but how many people they made happy. And they measured that. And they asked customers, how'd you feel about the experience? Were you happy? Were you delighted? Blah, 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 blah. So he took that kind of line of sight thing, measurement thing uh, to, uh, to a very, very low level. Um, and it, it, was, it was great. He's, and he's the only one I've ever discovered that, that had such a vision at such a young man. Unfortunately, he, he died. And, um, and, uh, that, but that's his legacy for, as far as I'm concerned. So simple concept. How strategic is that? Delivery happiness. Yes. Yeah. Super. Super simple. Powerful. <laughs> has an amazing culture. Has amazing intention with it. Yeah. Yeah. What would be what? I mean, do you do you apply a certain set of cultures or rules or standards or commandments to the way you you work and and your principles or your non negotiables? I mean, what would they be? I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of like a just about right guy. I, I, you know, I don't have any sort of going in um, sort of constraints. Maybe it's a function of age because I'm not 20 anymore. And I've learned a lot. What I've learned is a lot of those things just take up all sorts of energy. They don't work anyways. So, so what the hell? So I've, I'm, and I won't say that I've completely mastered this, but I, I try to go with the flow a little more I try to plan, I call it planning on the run, which means, you know, you run into an unexpected event and you have to roll with that and try and just define an outcome that, that makes sense, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I guess the one part at the end of the day, which would be the bottom line is that if I'm involved in a project or, uh, or uh, an event or anything that has financial implications, we get them. Everything else is generated and created as a mosaic to deliver to that goal. And so I've never, ever lost that. I've, I've had people around me say, oh, you're, you know, you, you're just doing this, these sorts of things because they're different. And you want to be recognized. I said, no, it goes back to our conversation we had earlier. If you, can't, if you can't define what you do as means to an end, then you shouldn't be doing them. And so the end for me, I guess, in various things that, that we've done, writing a book is one. Uh, that end that never changes, but I've learned that, that by planning on the run, typically events change and the unexpected happens and, and we need to do different things in order to get there. And that's, that's kind of like my model. That sort of defines how I behave typically. Hmm. Where, where did you start out, Roy? What was your, you know? Oh, yeah. So I got a, I graduated from university and I joined um, uh, a telephone company as a systems analyst because my degree was math and computer science. So I got into the data processing department as a systems analyst. Now the reality was I did a bit of programming, but not a hell of a lot. Um, and this was at a time when, as I said earlier, the business was going through this transformation from uh, basically owning customers. Uh, in a monopoly sense, into a competitive world where we had disadvantages and, and the, in, the incumbents had disadvantages and the new players had advantages. 
And so for some reason, and I can't explain why, like I've always, I've always been interested in doing things differently. I mean, my mantra is be different or be dead. It really is. And it started out very, very young. Um, sometimes it's been painful, but it started very, very early. And so as I, as I looked at the business, I said, you know, we're not really, and this is at a very young age too, right? It's without a hell of a lot of business experience. It's like, we're doing some things that, that we are pulling from the past and I'm not comfortable with them. I'm not convinced. I'm not seeing any innovative, creative, new changes being made to the business, uh, given the change in the environment that we're going in, we're going into. And so for some reason, I just kind of made it part of my agenda to start seeking out and doing different things that in my own space made a difference and got noticed. So that was a key thing, got noticed. And people could say, all right, now I can, I can see what Roy did differently and I can, I can equate that to where the company's going because I would tell them, I would make the connection for them, right? So I spent a lot of time doing that. I worked around and up the company doing that at every opportunity. I looked at challenges through what I would call my be different lens. And I would always ask myself, how can I do this differently? How can I do it in a way that nobody else has done? How can I do it in a way that's against the flow? Again, though, to add value, create compelling value for the shareholder. Always that, never for myself. And people just got it. It took a while. It, it, it did. And I just, so that was, a, that was my around and up strategy that eventually uh, got me into positions like uh, uh, executive vice president positions of, of running operations where I really spent a lot of time with frontline people and I got to know their souls. Just wonderful. And know how important they were. See, a lot of the people who are vice presidents have never run an operations business. So that's why they're forced out of the textbook, right? So I made it a point. And fortunately, the company was, was good enough that they moved me around. So maybe they saw some potential. So they moved me around. So I did executive positions responsible for operations. I was the EVP of marketing and I had marketing and sales. And, and, uh, and I learned what credit and collections were all about and, and how important these people in the front line were in terms of convincing people to give us money because their credit was in jet. I mean, all this really detailed stuff. And then finally, you know, as the business grew and we and the data opportunity came, I ended up being asked to run the, the, uh, the data and Internet uh, business. So that whole journey was um, about, I don't know. I want to say about 25 years, I guess, around and up. And I look upon that and because I never expected my, my kids would always joke at me and say, dad, you've only worked for one company. What, what, what's with that? And I said, well, it may be one company, but it's a whole bunch of small businesses that I've had a chance to learn and, and work in and lead. And, and so never occurred to me to leave. So why would I? Um, even through uh, even through demotions, I mean, I was demoted as an executive when we when we acquired a telephone company uh, because I placed my direct report on the project team that was doing the implementation because he was the best person for the job, and as a result, he got the job in the new company that I reasonably would would have been considered for. So I was demoted. I was kicked out of the executive team, and I had to I had to deal with that. I dealt with that. And um, yeah, so that was a big learning. So a lot of kind of bumps along the way 
and then having the chance and the and the to be grateful for the opportunity to to make a contribution in the in a data and internet space was just what can I say? Well, what have you learned about yourself through all this? Um, I'm really patient. Uh, I'm, and that may sound surprising, but irrespective of the fact that I'm, I'm pretty insistent on things getting done, which some people might describe that as impatience. It's not, it's insistence and holding people accountable. But I do understand, because I've learned to understand that success comes through, I call them getting a nano inch worth of progress, getting an inch worth of progress as quickly as you can, but understand that, you know, things have to move along and something, some things take a bit longer than others. So I think patience, I've learned the power of loyalty. Um, uh, that is probably, that was probably one of the most underappreciated concept in business is, I mean, everybody talks about customer loyalty, um, but to really, to really dissect that and, and exhibit it on a daily basis to not just customers, but also employees. Like I've, I've fought battles on the inside of an organization with people that I have been insanely loyal to, and that was a mistake, right? And I've learned from that. And so it's kind of one of these things. I'm really loyal. I expect loyalty because I'm so loyal. I stay with people. I stay with teams. I stay with concepts. I stay with it. That's just part of my DNA. Um, and when it's not appreciated, uh, it's really upsetting. So patience, loyalty. Um, I think I've learned that I'm, um, I'm pretty creative. I don't copy a lot. I create, not copy. You can quote me on that. That's the first time I've used that, by the way. Another first for Pete. <laughs> and it, it goes to the fact that I hate benchmarking. I hate it because it's, a, it's the antithesis of innovation. I mean, in fact, it's, it's, it's intellectually dishonest, Pete. People say that, well, they're being innovative and all they're doing is Googling how somebody did it and trying to copy it. Right. So copying is the antithesis of innovate. So I say create, not copy. That's part of me. I don't like it. I just don't. Um, unless it's court, sort of for heart surgery. Right. Or running or flying an aircraft. Right. Where the number of takeoffs really has to equal the number of landings. It really does. Right. But other than that, you know, I'm into create, don't copy. And that's a big part of who I am. So those are three things. Uh, that uh, you know especially the create not copy I, I think it's so powerful that you know people are so busy trying to be everything right at the same time that they you know sort of saying well i can't remember if someone else said that or did i say it that sounds like a really good idea so i'll um i'll just put my name at the bottom right you know and you're like, <laughs> yeah do, do we need to do that sure. there's, yeah uh, there's and, a bit of that going on you know and, and that's it it only takes once for your integrity integrity to be shook you know i mean uh, for you, is your is your integrity important to you? And I suppose what you do, and I'm going to assume it is. But how, I'm sorry, how, I didn't get the question. Well, I suppose you know, is integrity or your values? What? How would you summarize your value set, your core values, if you like? Well, again, I I think I'm I'm an honest, 
person. I, I have high expectations. Hmm. I'm, I'm extremely uh, action oriented to the point of being criticized by acting too fast. I just do. Uh, I don't, I don't ponder very long. I reach a conclusion based on the evidence in front of me and do something about it. I can't tolerate talking about shit. If I can't do anything about it, talking about it as was this buddy of mine, I worked with name was Ron Johnson. Lost his whole may rest in peace. He said, Roy, doing it is 10 times better than talking about it. Never left me. And it's so true. I mean, there's so much of the world based that this sits around pontificating about possibilities. I'm not one of those. You know, if I can't get it done, I don't want to talk about it. So and that's a huge part of who I am, a huge part. Uh, somebody said, well, why don't we just think about it for a while, Roy? I said, no, thought about it enough, right? I'm going to get on. Now, the result of that is you make mistakes. I'm okay with that. I'm, I make mistakes. Because at the end of the day, if you make more mistakes, you're making more progress than somebody who's deathly afraid of making one at all. So you just got to keep moving, keep your feet moving, make mistakes, try things. Like, why don't we have the number of tries in a person's balance scorecard for performance evaluation purposes? I used to. I said, I want you to make 15 tries of something new this week. And I want you to tell me what they were. Well, <laughs> really? I mean, yeah, but, but some of them won't work. I know that. It's okay. I know that. And so I'm, I'm kind of loose. I'm a loose sort of thinker that way. I'm, I'm really infatuated by weird stuff. And I'm not talking about DNA weird. I'm talking about things we choose to do differently, right? The things that we choose to do differently to achieve. In fact, I say to, to, to young professionals, I say, look, at first thing you need to do to figure out this whole be different thing is go hang out with some weirdos. And I mean that with absolute respect. People that chose, it's like the guy that ran, that runs the heart attack grill. He's weird. Absolutely. He's crazy. Find a way to go hang out with a guy like that. Learn how they think. Learn why they think. I mean, it's extremely, I'm going to do that one day. I'm going to go down there and just talk to him. Now, we should do a podcast with that dude, right? Right in the middle of his, of his restaurant. And just hope nobody has a heart attack. When, when it's going on. There is something about that, isn't it? Just, and it's not so much being different for the sake of being different. It's just the case of going, listen, there's no rights or wrong here. This is just the way I think and that's okay. And, and I don't need to conform. I don't need to do anything else. I'm not, I'm not necessarily trying to make a statement per se. I'm just independent thinking, right? That's exactly what it is. Now, the, the problem is that the school system doesn't teach us that that's okay yeah. because it teaches us to color inside the lines. It teaches us to follow uh, prescriptions and formulas. And again, I'm not saying that that's wrong. It just doesn't go far enough. It doesn't provide the value that people need when they get the hell out of that classroom to do the sorts of things that we're talking about, right? The number of trips you make is a good thing. When you trip up, it's okay. I mean, I can see it in my grandkids right now. I mean, and, and how they approach exams and, and how they, you know, how they approach the, 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 the fear, right, of not getting 98%. So that's, now I, I got to tell you, that's exactly the way I was in the day when I went to school. 
but I just figured it out that you had to get away from that. It's not, you know, rewarding, as you say, I mean, I've, I've three young kids myself and it's, it's rewarding the input in as opposed to the results out, you know, the results out great, whatever, you know, but at the same time, it's like, well done for trying, you know, that's it. It's well done for getting started. Well done for, you know, going against the norm. Well done for just doing it right. You know, that's, that's powerful in itself. You know, you start off with some action and then you're going to learn something, right? Worst case is you do it wrong. Okay. You learn that, but that's the key though. Okay. Which I don't think is being done very well. Okay, it's one thing to encourage activity, but it's another thing. Like I used to say, okay, I'm okay to try that, right? But but don't ever make the same mistake twice. Not on my watch. It's okay to make it, to try it. Because if you say make the same mistake twice, Pete, you haven't learned from it. Yeah. And so that was always my gauge, right? Go ahead and try. Um, I'm okay with a, with a mistake, but I, I, I will absolutely not tolerate the same mistake twice. And so there's always, the, there's always that kind of like boundary around activity. And why is that? Well, again, it's because it's results driven. You're not, you're not just doing the activity because of the activity, right? You're doing it as a means to an end. And so that's why, quite frankly, Oh, and your listeners will will be upset with me on this one, but it's like I actually don't agree with this whole notion of well, you know, it's it's how you play the game, not whether you win or lose, right? I've heard my my grandkids talk to me about that. Well, but well, guess what? They understand that. Yeah, yeah it's okay to have fun, but don't ever forget why the heck you're out there. You're out there to play the game, and the game is defined on the basis of winning and losing. That's what a game is. There's a lot of people that, of course, do not subscribe to that. And I take no issue with it. But my view is better sooner than later. You do things to reach an end. You play an amazing game in midfield and your team lost. Okay, you should take pride over the fact that you had a good game. And there were other things outside your control. That's okay, right? But don't tell me you just did it to have fun. No, no, you did it to perform well. And hopefully, because it's not all in your hands, hopefully win the game. That's what it is. And it's the same thing with marks. I mean, we had some, some schools here that actually got rid of marks. Now, you, this may seem like a bit, bit of a contradiction in terms of what I've been saying, but it's not at all. The end result, because the school writes the, <laughs> writes the rules, is to get the best mark you can. I mean, that's just the way it's written, right? And so there are some schools that actually uh, took that away as a test because they wanted, they wanted kids to feel more engaged in activity in that. And I disagreed with that. I said, hey, real world, it's about results. All this is, is a certain kind of result. Okay, so to unhook it, in my view, didn't make any sense. That's just my view. But I, I'm going to call you on this one because there's a slight juxtaposition here. In that, you know, if, if you get in sort of almost an exec management team, you want the scope, you want the ability to just run and go. But yet when it comes to the marking system, they're saying, no, 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 you should get a mark. So there is, I'm, I'm going to call you on this and because uh, I'd be interested to see what your thoughts are. You know, and one thing is, why should it be structured? On the, on, and then when it comes to implementation side, it's like, guys, enough of the planning, let's go to the doing, right? But is even there- in the doing, uh, I, oh, 
Yeah, good. It's, it, it is consistent. Okay, because again, the thing that's never unhooked from anything that I've said, right, is, is, is the objective of achieving the result that you sent out to achieve. And so when I say, go try a bunch of things, don't ever think that at the end of the day, that's okay if we miss our revenue target, mm. because we have to come back in there and say, okay, what was working, what wasn't working with that, so we can learn from it and, and tweak it. Still within try, still within innovation and creativity, still within making mistakes, okay, but all driven to, to how shall I say this, make it, uh, to tweak it in a way that does a better job of delivering to the end result. Sure. I mean, it's just, it's just a, again, a means to an end. The problem we have is that in a lot of organizations, that means isn't even being considered. So my, my, my good day will be when more people just start playing with the notion of introducing a trying mentality in the work environment mm. and seeing where it will go. I'm not asking them to give up the top line revenue objective. That's always there. But it's just another means. And and you look at, you know what? It may turn out for some organizations, it doesn't work for whatever reason. It could be because of people. It could be because of just the attitude of leadership. And so if that's the case, then you you need to find another means. For me, I guess what I'm saying, and I'm not saying this is a prescription, but for me, that kind of model, if you want to use that word, worked. It Hmm. did. And, And I can't tell you why. All I can tell you is, it was one of the contributing factors to the billion. And so I have to advocate it because it, it was part of the solution. I think it was, I think it was black box thinking. It was Matthew Said, if I remember rightly. And he talked about, you know, having team sizes is either that or tipping point in the book. But he talked about team sizes of always max 25. So clustering mm-hmm. them in, in, in 25s. Because you had ownership, right? You had this sort of team size that said, you know, I don't want to let down Jenny in finance. I, you know, I know that, you know, Bob's having a hard time and he's had an operations in this within this division, right? So that was sort of teamwork, doing it together. It's like I'm, I feel responsible for, you know, like we were saying earlier on, that if everyone's pushing for the same goal, it's not a case of going, well, screw them. That's a different department not my problem. Right. You know, it's, it's, we're all in the same thing together, right. We're all in it. And, and it's, it's, yep. this has to be done somehow. We, we all have to club together. Right. That's always a very powerful message. I feel. It, it's a, it, absolutely extreme. Whether it's, I think you're right. I think it was a 25. I think I read that too, whether it's 25 or whether it's 10 or whether it's whatever it, it may look differently for different companies, but, or different organizations, but the notion of getting, people together and lighting a bonfire as opposed to individual fires is always a good thing. Always a good thing in, 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 in my view. Um, and we need to do more of that. But the other thing it does point out, I've written a bit about this as well, is kind of like, is the process management responsibilities of leaders. Like results are never delivered up and down to the outside. They're always delivered across the organization. And involve more than one function, you know, marketing and sales and production, blah, 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 blah. And so the, the process that cuts through all those functions is extremely important in terms of the quality of the output. And yet there's no owner for most processes, unless, of course, they've got a process management organization in a, in a company and, the, org- and, and the, the, the leader of that process management owns the process. But the problem is they don't own it. They're responsible for it, but they don't own it. 
Not only that, they don't control the pain and pleasure of the people working in it, right? In other words, they can't affect their behavior because they don't report. So it's got that classic up and down sideways dilemma. And I've always advocated that, that the executive who owns most of that output should own the process. Hmm. Um, and I was never able to quite get that one done because that's huge. Right. Like I would argue that that in the data world, I should have been responsible for all the processes that deliver data Internet revenue. Well, I would have cut deep in the organization into traditional kind of voice functions that were used to be, et cetera, et cetera. Could never sell that. So you, you, you drag that one out of me, Pete. You drag the failure out of me. Damn, I missed that one. But I think it's something that that needs to be. Uh, needs to be dealt with more and more by organizations. If somebody owns the process, they create the metrics for its success and they're held accountable for the outcome. Just like if it were up and down, it just gets a little more complicated. So to circle back, I, I think that's that's beautiful about, you know, really keeping keeping it on like a 30-day leash, right? It stops it from being too far out. It stops it from disconnecting from your present day because it's like, oh, well, listen, we'll worry about that next month, right? You know, and, and lo and behold, three months have passed and God, we're, you know, I mean, I'm curious as well here. I mean, how many decisions in general, you know, they go through the planning and I've, I've worked in plenty of organizations where it's like, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll prep all this and give it up to them to make a decision. They can choose. It's their choice. And then they, they then sort of summarize it and hand it up to somebody else. And says, like, well, somebody make a bloody decision here. Just, just make the decision. Right. You know, and, and it's that, I suppose it's that aspect of, you know, one, making a decision to sort of being strategically thinking and deciding that actually, yeah, this has got to happen. This is going forward, you know, and uh, having the balls to do it, to be quite frank, you know, because. Yeah, I never, I never fussed much about I would have from a structural point of view, I would have the 30 day uh, reviews of, of financials or let's call it uh, performance reviews every 30 days. <laughs> but I would also have executive team meetings with my direct reports on an ongoing basis weekly. Okay, so we had a couple of forums that we could deal with things. Um, uh, and of course, uh, every, I think it was every three months, a formal review of the strategy. So it wouldn't be an annual review, it'd be every three months, we'd have a two day session and we just drill through the strategy that we had, what we learned from the 30 day reviews, et cetera, et cetera. Decisions were never an issue, we make those. I mean, on the run, whatever the, whatever we decided to do, we just did it. Okay. I, I didn't, I sure as hell didn't ask for permission from the CEO to, to do anything. I just told him, uh, this is what we're doing. And, uh, and he'd go, okay, yep. Boom. But no, there wasn't any of that. So, so we didn't have any inertia built in the system. Now there are other teams that other organizations that don't work that way, but it's a function of the leader. Pete, I mean, you can do whatever you want. I mean, if you have a team that's motivated through a leader to actually get it done, you can get it done. Yeah, I totally get it. I totally get it. And we didn't fuss that much about, you know, is the strategy right versus the execution? What we would say is, does the execution, maybe it is the same, but it comes at it differently. Does the execution uh, experience imply anything in the strategy that we got wrong so it was backward assessment not forward assessment 
In other words, if if we were if we were encouraging a lot of losses in a given segment that, that we got information from the call center for, the first thing that we looked at is, well, what about the performance of the call center? I mean, is this working right? You know, what is it? What are the uh, what are the engagements, customer engagements look like? Uh, are, are they are they following the fingerprint architecture or not or blah blah blah? So we kind of went at it that way because if you get trapped coming at it from the up-down strategy way, you get lost in the philosophy and you get lost in all that other stuff. And I refuse to go there. I, I just did. I mean, look, if their strategy is 85% pristine, who cares about the other 15? I never did. Okay. So was it perfect? No. Well, it would it have been perfect that I spent another three years on it? No. So I didn't care. We had it just about right. I call it just about right planning. There's another one for you. Come on, you're getting way too much for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's what's a happy ratio? 50% planning, 50% action? Is it 80-20? 80-20. 20% planning, 80% execution. Cool. And, and I'll, I'll tell you why. All you need to do is get it just about right. I keep calling it heading west. So I'm sitting in Toronto. Wouldn't really be well. I'm sitting in Toronto and my, my strategy is to head west. I don't know exactly where west. I don't know whether it's Vancouver or Comox or, or Calgary. All I know is I want to go west, right? Now, how will I figure out the exact destination? I'll figure it out by starting the journey. And I'm going to learn on the basis of the journey. And after a while, it'll become crystal clear where I should end up. It's a kind of a loose analogy I, I, I get, but, but for me, it does, it does make the point of, of the fact that we shouldn't be so hard on ourselves when it comes to formulating the plan. I created, I, if we have time for this, just a, a, just a real quick one, my strategic game planning process, and it was called a game plan very specifically because it was oriented to executing something. Right. It, it wasn't it wasn't one of these pristine documents that you think has been ironed and put on the shelf. <laughs> the pages have never been have never been crumpled or anything. Three questions. The strategic game plan process was a plan that was generated by asking three questions. The first question, and it's all in my all in this, all in this three questions. First of all, how big do you want to be? That's a question of growth and it's all top line revenue. Do you want to be a $10 million company in 24 months? And it's all based on 24 months. Or do you want to be a 1 million? It makes a difference. The, the, the size of the, of the growth objective determines the character of the strategy. So you get done that first. The second question is, where are you going to get the money? So that's the second question is, who do you choose to serve? The customer segments or customer groups represents a choice. And you have to make a choice. You don't want to do mass markets. What you want to do is pick as few customer groups as you can that have the latent potential to deliver your revenues. Now, ideally, you'd like to get that from one customer. I appreciate that's probably unrealistic. How about two customers? Um, how about 10 customers? But I know it's not going to be 10 million because that's in the mass market games. The third question, so now you want to be 10 million and get them for three customer groups. The third question, which is a critical one in this too, is how will you compete and win? That's a question about competitive advantage. Okay, you answer those three questions and you have your strategy. It's a built to execute strategy. 
The thing that's really different about it is what I created in the third question, okay, around how do you describe your competitive advantage? Like, like most organizations, and I call this claptrap, use expressions like we're better, we're best, we're number one, we're the market leader, we're premium. First of all, that's claptrap because nobody believes it. They're loose, vague, aspirational. And fortunately for you as the author, you'll never be measured on them because it's impossible to measure them, right? So I came up with this notion called the only statement. This is mine. Nobody else, can, it's mine. I had to create this for my data company to stand out. And it is, goes like this. We are the only ones that, and you have to fill in the blanks. And so in order to get to the 10 million by serving those three segments with all the competition now in those three segments or customer groups, we need to be different. We need to be the only ones that do something that has compelling value to the customer group we just selected. And if you answer those three questions, and it could go something like this, we will grow our business in 24 months to a billion dollars in sales by serving the ABC customer groups in Vancouver, full stop. We will be, we will win by being the only one that, okay? That's the strategy. It's an elevator strategy speech. That particular uh, strategy and way of looking at it drove execution. Now, the only statement is critical to this. And I wanna make the point to your listeners and viewers that you need to take a look at this because there's far too much garbage out there in terms of people making competitive claims. You know, being able to say that you've been in the business for 100 years, I'm sorry, may be important to you, but it's not important to me. What I want to know is what are you doing for me lately that nobody else does? The competitive claim has to answer the question, why should I do business from you and no one else? Look at any competitive claim. Look at them. And I guarantee you, none of them None of the brands say stuff like that. They say, well, we provide solutions to small business. Okay, nice. <laughs> but I'm kind of left feeling like I need a bit more information. And so we created that, that way of looking at the world. And it was extremely um, useful. Um, and we looked at that, Pete, every time we did a strategic review. Is it still relevant? because we would test it, right? We would test it with customers and we'd take our only statement to them and say, okay, two questions. Is it real? In other words, does it address something that you care about? And, and is it true? Are we telling the truth or are we lying to you? Or do we consistently demonstrate it? And we just kept that metric in front of us, that in front of us all the time. And we refined it over time, et cetera, et cetera. But, but we did not lose market share. We didn't because we were focused and that's the point that you made earlier about trying to be all things, but you can't got to be focused, but you got to be guided. Your focus has to be guided with your strategic game plan. I just finished doing a podcast with a girl from um, North Vancouver on branding. And one of the things I said to her, as I said, you know, I don't like the brand. <laughs> I don't like the brands that I'm seeing because first of all, I don't understand the strategy that they're serving. And secondly, I don't know how they're unique. And those are the two big missing pieces in brands. It's the same thing with strategy itself. You never, you're never, you're always being compared. You always are. 
I mean, you may not if you're in the business, but your clients are. They're always comparing you. So why not deal that up? And so we had uh, we had a lot of success with with that, and we applied it to basically everything that we we did. It's another little example of of the be different notion that um, that really worked in in practice. And today, to be honest, I've done this work with clients, and we get this done in two days. The strategy piece, going back to your question, the strategy piece represented twenty percent of the total time. That's all I would allow. You can't get it done in, with 20% of the time available. It ain't going to happen. We're going to take what we got and we're going to run with it. Now let's bear down on how we're going to execute that imperfect strategy. And at first, of course, you go, what? Yeah, but I don't know enough. I, the numbers of it. And today they'll thank, they thank me for it and say, wow, you just jolted me right out of my skin. I said, good. That's a strategic concept, by the way. Yeah. Jolting somebody out of their skin. Is that is it a useful concept? I mean, how do you make sure that's that's a you know a, a, it's it's done with the right you know not panic, but actually getting them out of their own sort of getting them out of their own way, if you like. Yeah, so it's non-trivial, okay, for sure. To your point, um, but yes, it can be done. Um, what what I do is when I have one of these uh, s SGP, strategic game planning sessions, I insist that the CEO and all the direct reports are in the room. Everybody who's accountable for a piece of the execution needs to be at the table. And I would say that, yeah, there's, there's debates, there's acrimony, there's, there's fear, there's all this stuff comes out as we go through this. I mean, imagine having a conversation around how big without having a whole bunch of studies. Okay, imagine the, 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 the CFO, okay, as being part of that, that, that particular conversation. When I asked the marketing guy, how much revenue do you think we need? Right, and he comes up with a number and the CFO chokes. I mean, that's, I mean those were gut-wrenching, but the reality was we worked through them. And to a large extent, I was playing kind of a dual role, not just facilitating it, I was driving content just because I kind of knew the games that were being played and because I had them played against me. And so I'd work them through it. The only statement, what I said to them is look at, uh, because I've had some organizations say, Roy, we're not special at anything. We're not only at anything. And I'd say, well, I think you are. It's just that we haven't figured that out yet. Okay. So let's go back. Let's look at the customer segments, right. That we've decided to serve. Do we really understand them? That's where the precision thinking comes in. What do we know about segment A? What do we know about what they crave? What do we know about the competitors in there? What do we know about the competitive claims? What do we know about our capabilities to serve them better than anybody? Or only in a certain way. And then we would craft an only statement. And I would always say, look at, um, this is a draft. Treat it as a draft. Right. We're going to test the draft with frontline people and customers to make sure that A, we are delivering what they care about, and B, it's true. And then we're going to go execute around this. And we're going to learn through execution as to whether or not we've got it completely right. And we will modify it over time. You see, that takes the angst away. That takes away this, this sense of, of permanence with humongous risk. Mm. 
it, re, it realistically places in a position of it's a try and we're going to give it a whirl and we're going to learn and tweak uh, on the run. And, and were we able to, to get a plan done incorporating that? Absolutely. Every time we'd have it done in two days and they executed, started actually executing their strategy through communicating and so forth, as you would expect on the third day. And that's what I advertise. So if you guys, uh, and people go, what? Well, because they haven't had this conversation. That's why. And so, um, yeah, it can be done. It has been done. And we'll keep doing it for the people that, that want to try it, right? Just really introduce your book properly here so that we know. So, I mean, be, diff be different or dead. I mean, that's the title. I love the title. I mean, it's, it's so punchy. What was your intention? And um, yeah, just give us a bit of an overview, if you would, please. So this, this is my latest, Be Different or Be Dead, The Audacious Unheard of Ways I Took a Startup to a Billion in Sales. That's the latest. Be Different or Be Dead is actually the main title of six other books that I've written around the notion. The first one being uh, that I wrote, it was in 2009. Now, the interesting thing is, and the, the, the latest one, that was a hard copy book. Then I wrote a bunch of ebooks taking individual segments of the first book, like marketing and sales, like uh, execute first, plan second is, is an ebook on execution. Be Different You is an ebook around career development, because that's something we haven't talked about. Because this, this applies, this Be Different or Be Dead applies just as well to that. Leading up to, oh, I guess a, a year and a half ago, I said, gee, you know, um, I'm not seeing a whole lot of changes in business in the world and organizations. It's time to have another go at this. So that's what, what basically motivated me to write, to write the seventh book, um, which was, I think the concepts, don't forget, just coming out of a pandemic, the concepts are probably more relevant now than they ever were. But the power of the content struck me as being, as being there. Like how many books how much content, like literally 13 years ago, okay, has withstood the test of time and is even more relevant today? I concluded very few, and that gave me motivation to, to actually write, write a, a, a new version of the book. And of course, I'd learned a lot more about my stuff en route, uh, which is funny, you know, this, it, this whole be different thing is so, is so intriguing to me that I haven't figured it out yet. I mean, it's kind of like the part of the process, how it applies. I mean, hell, I've learned that it applies to me as a grandfather in terms of the way I deal with my grandkids. I am the different papa. I behave differently. They expect different things from me. They make comments about, papa, you're kind of edgy. You know, all like, <laughs> just who I am, right? So I decided it's probably time. So I'm working with a, uh, a publisher out of New York by the name of Morgan James, great company. And this book is now out in ebook, which you can get, or uh, the, the actual print version will be out May the 31st in bookstores everywhere. I have some advanced copies, of course, because I'm an author. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to, to see the environment. Um, and I, that's why I appreciate conversations like this. It gives me a chance to talk about my stuff and hopefully excite people to try one or two different things. Um, and by the way, I have an offer for you. It's called Pay Audacious Forward. So what I'm prepared to do for anybody that wants to participate is to sell them 
a copy of this, right, at a friends and family rate, and provide them with a free signed copy of the same book. So it's kind of like a two for one. So buy a book for a leader or a colleague or a work um, um, mate that you that you really respect. Buy a copy for them, and I will send you free a signed copy for yourself. So that's pay audacious forward. All you got to do is send me an email. I need uh, an email address and we'll figure out how to do the details like transactions and that. I haven't figured that out yet, but we'll, <laughs> we'll sort it out. Pay audacious forward. Well, that's tree by name, right? That's, you know, just make it happen. Whatever it takes, just get, yeah, exactly. it, get it done. I love it. That's a beautiful offer. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. You're welcome. That. My pleasure. If you were to try and then really describe your fire in your belly in one or two words, Roy, what, what would they be? Be different. Simple. I mean, be different, audacious. They all mean the same things to me. Step it out. Don't step it in. Get out of the herd. I mean, it's too warm and comfortable in there. And, you, you, and you're misled into believing you're safe. My God, you're never safe in a crowd. You're never safe in a herd. You're safer out there with more control over you. Just get out there. I ask people, okay, what I want you to do tomorrow is do one thing differently, just one, and give up something that you like doing. Just but take that baby step. Do a different thing. Doesn't matter what it is. And then the day after that, doing another one. Day after that, doing another one. And then you'll just see that after a while, my hope is that will become part of who you are. That will describe who you are. And then you'll look back inside the crowd and you'll go, really? I actually thought that was safe? That's my hope. Love it. Roy, where can people find out more about you? Where can they get links for the book and things like that? What's the best location? Well, you can go to my website. is bedifferentorbedead.com. On the website, I've got all of my resources that I've developed so far, at least. Like I blog every Monday and I blog about my stuff. In fact, the one that came out today is about branding. You'll enjoy it because you'll, you'll recognize some of it from this conversation. Like, so what I use for the, for the blog is just conversations like this that, that, that all of a sudden hit me. Oh, my God. It's just like the, this uh, fingerprint leadership. I got a whole article in my head over just that notion this morning, having my coffee. So I've written it down. So stuff like that and conversations with people like you and, and others, they motivate me to write on certain things that relate to my stuff. So I do that every Monday. So that's available. And so please subscribe to my blog. I really appreciate it because um, it's my way of kind of getting into you a little bit and maybe influencing what you do. Um, and then you can see uh, you'll have access to... Um, uh, my books, all seven books are there in terms of what they are, with the description and where you can get them. And, and uh, my email's on there, a contact function, please, any, anytime it's roy.osing at gmail.com. Uh, I'd be happy to have a conversation with anybody, anywhere, anytime around this. And, and I get interesting questions about, well, I'm doing this, what about that? So it's just a really cool way of making a connection out there with somebody who's at least taking the time and the interest to ask a question. And I think that's how change starts is unsettling with the way things are and asking a question about, well, what are the possibilities around be different? What is, what would that mean 
would that look like for me in this circumstance? So I encourage your, your audience to please take advantage of that and connect with me. I'd be grateful to have a conversation. I love it. Is there a final comment or a final message you'd like to leave with our listeners today? Um, not really. I think, thank you for a great job, Pete, by the way, my, my congratulations, you did a great job. You gave me more than, more than enough opportunities to, to talk about, about my work. And for that, I am truly grateful. I hope people just try it. Mm. Just try something. There's a lot of really cool, simple things in here that work for me. And I'm sure they will work for you. Um, and as I say, I'd happy be happy to, to provide ahead of the publication date a special printed version, which I have here in Vancouver. I'd be pleased to provide one paid and one free copy. It would be an honor. Right, it's awesome. Listen, it's been an absolute pleasure sort of talking with you today. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing your passion and your really your book. And, and listen, I wish you all the success with it. So uh, until the next time, thank you. Thank you very much, Pete. I appreciate it. Well, that was another great episode of Fire in the Belly. You know, this really wouldn't be possible without our great guests taking the time to share their personal journeys. And boy, boy, sometimes it is personal. It's an absolute pleasure to have that and then to hear the journeys that the people have been on. We've loads more episodes coming up soon, and it's always a pleasure to have guests on. If you do happen to know anyone with true fire in their belly, please reach out to us so we can share their journey, lessons and successes. So all that's left to say is have a great day, live with fire in your belly, and be the mightiest version of you. 